Well, good morning, City Light Lincoln Church. My name is Austin, and I'm a pastor here. I am very excited for this morning. We've been gathering for the last three months, going through our core values as a church, and this morning, we're actually switching it up, and you're going to love what we're switching it up for. So let's do a pop quiz. Uh, hear from a couple of you. How many verses in the Bible talk about um, faith? What do you think? Three? Okay, 21. Okay, 321. Uh, Actually, there's around 500 verses, so keeping in the same step. What about love? How many verses in the Bible talk about love? We talk about it all the time. How many do you guys think? 100. 100. 331. Good guesses. It's around 500, actually. Uh, What about money and possessions? No, we don't like to talk about that much, but what about money and possessions? One one verse in the entire Bible. Okay. Uh, well, actually, it is. Uh, it's uh, over two thousand. Fifteen percent of Jesus's teaching had to do with money and possessions, and that's weird, right? Like we're always talking about love and faith, but there are more passages about money and possessions than both of those combined. And I don't think that this means that money is the main point. No, what God is doing is using money and possessions to show us what we love and what we have our faith in. And so in Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said, for, for where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. Now, if you want to know what you love, here's how you find it. Look at a transcript of what you've talked about in the last month and look at your bank statement. So if, if you want to know what you love, the litmus test is what you talk about and what you spend your money on. So if you were looking at my bank statement, you'd see that, uh, that You'd be like, that dude loves McDonald's, okay? He has to get a Big Mac every once in a while. Uh, he loves his dog, Ellie, and uh, he loves watching This Is Us on Hulu with no commercials. Holla at your boy if you like that. Hey, uh, well, man, and, and hopefully you'd also see that I love Jesus' church, and I love going on date nights with my wife, and uh, I love music. But in our church today, I think God is showing us that money is actually a greater, in our passage today, I think Jesus is showing us that money is actually a greater revealer of our heart than our speech is. Because we can talk and talk and talk, but never actually give anything or follow through. See, often um, we can say we want to give to the church and to people. We can talk about Jesus and a lot and what he calls us to do. But when it gets hard is when our checkbook comes into play. Right, like it gets harder when things go wrong. It gets harder when we look and see what everyone else is doing. We see all of our friends out upgrading their homes, upgrading their cars, and every other aspect of their lives, and we find ourselves struggling with the temptation to keep up. And so City Light, uh, you can tell what you love primarily by what you spend your money on. Now, let me preface this to kind of distill. I know we're getting tense in the room, but God is not out for your money. And he's out for your heart. See, money and how you spend it is simply a, uh, it's simply a symptom of the greater reality of your heart. And so if you've never given a dime to the church or to the mission of God, this morning is going to be very helpful and I pray extremely encouraging. And if you've been, been giving faithfully to the church, God's mission, but it feels hard to give, well, I hope this encourages you and motivates you to give, not out of guilt, um, but out of a grateful heart. And so the topic of giving, we have to understand, is not a money issue. It's a gospel issue. So let's open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8, and we'll read verses 1 and 2. 
Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, and it's a second letter to them and actually my favorite book of the Bible. So if you want to know Austin trivia, favorite book, 2 Corinthians. And he's writing to encourage the believers in Corinth and help address key issues that they can mature in. And so we'll see later in this passage that they're, they're growing in their faith and in their speech and their knowledge. And so if Paul were writing to City Light, to, to City uh, today, he'd celebrate that we, we got a new sign up, right? Like we, he'd celebrate that, that our college ministry on Tuesday nights is going really well and people are meeting Jesus and worshiping him. Uh, he'd celebrate that our city groups are like families and, and people are coming into them and they're growing. He'd probably celebrate that we sing about God's glory and Jesus's grace and sacrifice every single week. But then like a good pastor, he would hone in on things that weren't well. Areas that we can mature in. And for the church in Corinth, and I believe our church today, one of the biggest, generously. And so Paul starts out and says, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. See, so he doesn't say anything particularly bad about their church. He just says, well, let me tell you about what God is doing in Macedonia. And then Paul says, it's the grace of God, which most likely makes us think that they're going, things are going really well. So everyone's got a steady job. Uh, it's a thriving high school ministry. They got glazed and chocolate donuts from Krispy Kreme every Sunday. And, uh, but, but that's not the story he tells. But, but look in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Wait, what? Like, they're in a severe test of affliction, they're in extreme poverty, and they gave generously? Like, that doesn't make sense. And so the word for extreme poverty could be translated to, to rock-bottom destitution. This word describes a beggar who has absolutely nothing and no hope of getting anything, and their difficult circumstance may have been caused in part by their Christian faith. So in this time, a ton of people were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. It wasn't the cool thing to do. It wasn't the hip thing to do. So they may have lost their jobs or been excluded from trading because they refused to do anything that involved worshiping other gods. These Macedonians were exclusively worshiping King Jesus, and they may have paid the price for that. See, but their circumstances didn't hinder uh, them from giving. In fact, they gave joyfully and liberally. I mean, no computer could analyze this amazing formula, right? Like if you typed it in, you could never get this great affliction and deep poverty plus God's grace equals abundant joy and abounding generosity. Like it reminds me of uh, the paradox that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6.10, where he says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. Isn't that amazing? Uh, there, there's a story in Mark 12 of a poor widow giving two pennies. And Jesus sees her and tells his disciples in verses 43 and 44. See, he says, come, come, come here, come here, guys. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It sounds familiar to the, our story of the Macedonians, doesn't it? 
See, there's a danger in thinking that just because some people can give more, then they're somehow more important or more generous. But listen, it's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. It's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. See, this poor widow puts two pennies in the giving box and the other people put in a $1,000 check, but Jesus says she gave more. Why? Well, it's because she gave everything she had. But here's how most of us operate. We look at our budgets and we think, man, I could, I could give this much and still be fine. Or I need to save up for the basement remodel. So maybe I'll cut back giving just a little bit, like just for a, a few months. Or our budget's pretty tight. And I don't want to go poor from giving or anything. I mean, I still have to finish my basement. Like what would I ever do without a finished basement? And maybe you're doing an amazing job of giving sacrificially every month, and thank you. I mean, hear me say thank you. So many of you are, gen- are giving generously, and I'm overwhelmed week after week, month after month, to see how God is providing through our church. So thank you. Hear me say that. But... I know that it's far easier to give when when money's coming in and everything's good. I know it's far easier to give a certain amount of money when it's just a small fraction of our income. But what if circumstances change? What if disaster strikes? What if your world comes crashing down? Cancer, car accident, college bills, debt weighing in on you, being laid off. Like, where do you start to cut in your budget? And I'm confessing that as your pastor, when times get hard for me, my first thought is, man, maybe we could just give less this month. I mean, like, the, all, all the other bills, they have to get paid for, right? But, but giving to the church, that's it's different. That's my sin in me that wants to try and control circumstances by giving less or giving More and friends, if we let our circumstances, whether good or bad, dictate our generosity, we aren't responding to the constant, consistent, and compelling grace of God. We're letting this world guide our finances, and the Macedonians and this poor widow are an amazing picture of people responding to the grace of God and not their circumstances. Would we be a church that does that as well? And so let's read in verses three and four. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So point one was giving in spite of uh, circumstances, and my second point is giving enthusiastically. See, Paul says that the Macedonian church gave according to their means, which I would assume is, is the standard giving. So let's just say, for sake of ease, let's just say they gave 10% of their income to the church, to the mission of God. Now, this title, uh, the title of this sermon is Beyond the Minimum. Now, our natural tendency is to give exactly what we can to get by, which is the minimum. Which is what Paul is saying that these people are doing in Macedonia. But then he finishes the statement, look, and he says, and beyond their means, translation, they gave beyond the minimum. They gave like the poor widow, all she had, not a portion of what she had, but all of it. And then Paul says in verse four that these people were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging to give. And so raise your hand if you've ever gotten on your knees and begged someone for the opportunity to give to them. Like most of us are like, dang, another support letter. Like how many missionaries does San Diego, California need, right? Like, God, I want to be a, I want to be a missionary there. Send me there. 
It's like, I'm not a piggy bank or an ATM. No, you go to Wells Fargo, you type in your four-digit code and withdraw money yourself. Homeboy got to watch. This is us on Hulu with no commercials and it costs $12 a month. But the the Macedonian church saw that their money wasn't meant to provide security for themselves. No, their money could be used to provide relief. Their money could be used to love people, to give shelter to people, to be a refuge to people. Their money could be used for the eternal, not just the temporary. And listen, it's possible to give generously, but not give enthusiastically. See, their giving was, un- or it was voluntary and unprompted. It was of grace, not pressure. They gave because they wanted to give and because they had experienced the grace of God. City Light, grace not only frees us from our sins, but it frees us from ourselves. The grace of God will open your heart and your hand. See, Warren Wearsby, he said it this way. When you see the beauty of God's grace, your giving is not the result of cold calculation, but of warm-hearted jubilation. It's not just a, hey, what's the percent? Let me calculate and figure it out. It's a warm-hearted jubilation. It's, I mean, it's a joy to be able to give. And so I want to ask, man, what does this mean for us? What does this look like? Well, I think we should be looking for ways to give. Like we can't just wait and and for people to ask us. We need to see a need and fill it. And so when you get your paycheck, what's your first thought? Ooh, new things. I need Amazon. I saw the new deals today. I got to get that. Oh, or or what about I could pay off more debt and that'd be nice. Or, Or I could give more to savings. And ladies, let me talk to you in the room. Let's be honest. You're thinking about Target. I'm going to go on a shopping spree. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I saw a dress. I need this purse. It's 15% off and it'd be perfect. Or what about duty? Ah, I've got to give some of this away. That's going to hurt. The other option, the gospel-centered option, is that, that it would be a joy, that we, we think joy because we get to give it away. We get to give some of that away. And so if you start to see the wonderful opportunity to give generously, listen, your job becomes less wearisome because it's a means to bless other people. It's more than just you sitting at your cubicle and making phone calls. It's more than teaching class. It's more than changing this. Your job and you, your labor can actually be used by God to bless other people. So the average household income in Lincoln is around $45,000. Now, you might think that's a lot of money. You might think that's a little, but let's just go with it as the average. And so say you pray, and God lays uh, 10% of your income on your heart. And so each year you give $4,500. Now, that's about uh, $375 a month. And you consistently give that to your church year after year. And after 20 years, that's $90,000 you would have been given, that you would have given. Isn't that amazing? Like that's $90,000 to help grow the church and reach people for Jesus and be a light to the community. But here's what our sin does. We start to think, man, that $90,000, that could be used, that could have been, uh, been invested and got interest. I mean, that could have went to this or that. And let's just say that you invested that money into something other than the church. And it gains 3% interest each year. I did the math. That's over $125,000 you could have. It's a comfier retirement, a better car, a bigger house, your kid's college fund. And listen, there's nothing wrong with retirement or a nice car or a big home or your kid's college fund. But at the end of your life, when you look back, will you be more excited about the square footage of your home or that the kingdom of God is growing? 
Will you be more excited about how nice your gravestone is going to be or the amount of lives that you got to impact and see meet Jesus, that lives got to be redeemed? Listen, numbers and figures are fun, but in the kingdom of God, people matter far more. Now, when I was in college, I uh, took my guys to a Bible study downtown. Uh, and uh, we go a couple times a month, and it was incredible. Um, we got to pray for people and, uh, and just talk with people and buy them lunch or dinner. And uh, we've developed friendships that have still lasted today. We, got, we saw people accept Jesus. And so while we were there uh, one uh, night, we were praying for a man, and another guy came up and just started interrupting us and started yelling, I don't believe in God, and this is fake, and all this stuff. And so when we got done, I walked up to him and said, hey, hey, man, like, What's going on? And uh, he said, "You know, I don't, I don't believe in, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. Money is my God." So I said, "Okay, well, um, how much money would you need to be happy?" And he thought for a few seconds, and he said, "Well, uh, uh, two million. And I told him, "All right, well, well, I want to start praying for you every day that you actually make two million dollars." And, and that day when you finally do, I want you to call me and tell me how it feels because I can promise you that once you get to two million, you'll want three. And once you get to three million, you want five million. And you might be happy for that day or for that season, but eventually after your home is filled with luxuries and your garage is full of cars and you're alone, those things won't make you happy. And if money is your God, you'll think getting more will be the solution and Trust me, it's a never-ending pursuit that will end in disappointment. Now, in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, You cannot serve God and money. Those are your two options. Those are your, uh, you can't serve both. And so City Light, man, if your world revolves around money and if you're in prison from giving more because you want more, you you functionally are living like money is your God and don't let money be your God. It's a horrible God that will take and ask and steal and seek more but never actually give you anything. And Jesus says you cannot serve both. You've got to choose which God you want to love, money or Jesus. Can't have both. And if Jesus is your God, you will be free to give joyfully and enthusiastically because money has no power over you. Jesus is the ultimate joy in everything we need. And so let's continue our reading, verses five through nine. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. My third point is giving like Jesus gave. See, Jesus is the ultimate example of generosity. He gave himself for broken, dirty, uh, a sinful sinners and humans. He gave himself. And in verse 5, we see that the Macedonian church giving themselves to God first. 
And this is so important for us to get because if you don't want to give to your neighbor or to your church, you don't have a problem with them. You have a problem with God. See, if we give ourselves to God, we won't have a problem giving our things to God. When we give ourselves to God, we will give ourselves to others. There is no way that you can say you love God but don't love the things he loves, namely people in his church. And then Paul goes on to say in verse seven, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what is this act of grace that he's talking about? It's giving generously. He says, I don't want you to just grow and mature in certain areas. I want you to excel in this act of grace also, which is the opportunity to give like Jesus. It's grace and a gift of God to represent Jesus with our giving. Jesus not, didn't just give a tenth of himself, but all his riches. He embraced poverty so that we might become rich. Hear me, his radical act of giving himself for broken sinners is the only thing that can consistently move us to give beyond the minimum. His radical act of giving himself for broken sinners like you and I is the only thing that can consistently move us to give beyond the minimum. Trust me, giving is not a money problem. It's a gospel problem. And if you don't desire to respond to God's grace with sacrificial giving, then we have not yet fully understood the nature of the gospel. And the answer to our motivation problem of not wanting to give generously is not an adherence to a new command, but actually experiencing the radical, generous love of Jesus Christ. It's not, if you're in the room and you're thinking, man, I, I, I want to give, and I, but I just feel like I can't. The, my, my application for you is not to try harder to see a new command or think you've got to do it. My, my compelling uh, argument for you is to actually experience the radical, generous love of Jesus. And in verse 9, Jesus says that, or in verse 9, Paul says that Jesus was rich, but he became poor. And so we've got to ask, well, how was Jesus poor? He, he traded perfect heaven for broken earth. He traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He traded praise on the angel's lips to mocking and spit from the rebellious sinners that he came to die for. He gave up his perfect, unbroken, eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to be separated due to our sin. He traded his righteousness on the cross and took on our sin. He traded heaven for hell. He traded praise for persecution. He united himself to mankind and took on himself a human body. He left the throne to become a servant. He laid aside all his possessions so that he did not even have a place to lay his head. And his ultimate experience of poverty was when he was made sin for us on the cross. Make no mistake, hell is eternal poverty. And on the cross, Jesus Christ became the poorest of the poor. And we've got to ask, well, why did he do that? Well, he says so that we might become rich. In our sin, we were broken without a glimpse of hope. In darkness, we ran and Jesus took on the utter darkness, the full weight of our sins so that we could receive the riches of eternal life. And listen, this doesn't mean that Jesus died so that we could live comfortably. That's the opposite of the gospel. Jesus died so that the enticing riches of the world would fall to their right place and our eyes would be so set on the eternal riches of knowing Christ. You are a child of God because of Jesus. You are an heir to the throne of God because of Jesus. 
what more could you possibly want? God has opened his hand to me, so how could I ever close my hand to his people? I pray that my life and our church would reflect Jesus' life, that rather than hoarding riches for ourselves, that we would enrich the lives of others. That's the gospel, that though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so I just want to take a couple moments to give you clear and helpful application. Now, there are people in the room that have never given to the church or, or that haven't given consistently. And my encouragement to you, it's nothing profound. It's just to start giving regularly. Like, sit down, uh, look at your budget, uh, look at your finances, pray and think of the generosity of Jesus and see what he leaves you to give. There's no special formula or special percentage. I just think, man, pray and see what he lays on your heart. There's a couple uh, that was in church in Omaha, and uh, for the first about four to five months of their marriage, they didn't tithe, and uh, they didn't tithe consistently. I mean, they gave a little bit, but not very much at all, and it wasn't consistent, so one of the pastors there had a conversation with them about it, and uh, this couple's man and wife, they were extremely convicted about it, so they went home, and uh, they just sought the Lord. They prayed. They opened up their Bibles. Uh, they saw, man, God, you've been so generous to me. We, we want to be generous with our finances, and so after that, uh, they felt like the Lord was leading them to give 10% of their income to the church. And their marriage became so much better. It became so much richer and beautiful in that they weren't arguing about money because they just felt like, man, money's in its right place because it's free. we're free to give our money away. We don't have, no longer have to hoard it and, and, and budget so tightly that we can't do this. This couple started to experience Jesus and his generosity in their marriage for one of the first times. And this couple, my wife and I, a year and a half later, man, Jesus has moved in our hearts to give more. And we've cut back on stuff so that we could give more. And, 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 and we've, we've been so joyous to, to gather together and pray. And God's laid the same number on our heart to give to people. It's been incredible. And I promise you, man, this is, though it is hard, it is completely worth it. To see our money go to something greater than a Roth IRA or a bigger TV, we get to see people meet Jesus in Lincoln. We've sent missionaries around the world and know that we've played a small part in God's great mission to seek and save the lost. It's a joy to give. And there are people in the room that give every single month, and thank you for that. But I do want to press in and just ask, do you find joy in giving? Like, have you calculated it and assumed that it's good, never revisiting it or asking if Jesus wants you to give more? If you aren't giving enthusiastically, you don't need a, a giving lesson. You need a deeper understanding of the gospel. You don't need a more precise budget. You need the freeing grace of Jesus. So would you press into your heart and see what he lays uh, upon your heart? So uh, another, no matter how much you give, it's valued and important. If you're a college student and you think that you get a free pass from giving because you don't make much, that's a lie. Like my friend Andrew McGill has literally no money. Like I don't even know how he lives. I don't know what he's eating tonight. I don't know. But a few months ago, we were in the mall with two of our friends and Andrew offered to buy us ice cream. I'm like, dude, you don't even have money to buy ramen noodles tomorrow. Like I don't know what you mean. Like how can you do that? And he looked at me and he said, how am I supposed to be generous when I have a lot if I'm not generous when I have a little. 
How am I supposed to be generous when I have a lot if I'm not generous when I have a little? How beautiful is that, right? And so if you're in a difficult circumstance financially, I'll let you in on a secret. It doesn't get easier when you make more money. It's harder because it's a bigger number. And so no matter how much you have or don't have, I do believe that Jesus is calling you to support your local church in reaching this city with the gospel of Jesus. And lastly, I just want to assure you, Mo and I aren't in this to be rich. Like we would have chose different career paths, right? And so um, just so you know, if you give more, it doesn't mean we make more. I want our church to realize that our giving goes to people's lives being changed. I mean, dream with me for a second. What if we gave so generously that we got to buy houses in this neighborhood, kind of fix them up a little bit, and house people that are in difficult circumstances? Wouldn't that be amazing? And, and, and what if we gave so generously that we could plant another church in a couple of years, give them $100,000 so they could go reach a new neighborhood for the gospel of Jesus? What if that happened in Kearney or Grand Island or another part of Lincoln? And what if we gave so generously that we could provide jobs for refugee families in our city? That's the mission that God is calling us into. Not to have a bigger building and fancier lights, but to be able to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus. That's why I give. And so I'm saying this in love, but I don't really care how big your house is. I don't care how big your bank account is or what your credit limit is. When you die, no one cares about you graduating with a 4.0 or making partner by 30 years old or how well your house is decorated. The only thing that will matter at the end of your life will not be that you gave everything away. The only thing that matters is that you believe that Jesus gave everything for you. And if, I, and if you believe that, then I'm convinced that you would freely give all things away because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. That with open hands we can say, Jesus, you take it. Whatever you want, I'll give it. That's a person responding to the grace of God. Let's pray.